Hello and welcome to the World of Mouth podcast, where we share the stories of the world's best chefs and restaurateurs and their favorite destinations to travel and eat. My name is Kenneth Nars and I'm the creative director of World of Mouth, a platform that connects more than 600 restaurant experts who share their favorite restaurants, from the best place for a pizza slice, a taco or hamburger, to the latest must-visit new fine dining restaurant opening. Today we're meeting Palisa Anderson, a farmer at Boonlock Farm and a second-generation restaurateur at the Chattai restaurants in Sydney, Australia. Her mother started Chattai in 1989, and Palisa Anderson and her family have expanded the business to multiple venues and an organic farm near Byron Bay. We'll hear Palisa Anderson tell about her childhood in her mother's restaurants and how she, after working abroad for years, decided to return to Sydney to join the family business with Thai food. At the end of the podcast, she will reveal her favorite restaurants in Australia, Japan, and in the rest of the world. You'll also find these places in the World of Mouth app. Please tell me, who is uh, Palisa Anderson? Hi, Kenneth. I'm Palisa Anderson. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a second-generation restaurateur and a first-generation farmer. Um, I, I steward a restaurant called Chat Thai in Sydney. My mother started it 35 years ago. Um, and yeah, so unbelievably here we are today supplying our Thai restaurant with ingredients that we grow organically from our farm um, just outside of Byron Bay. And yeah, it's an amazing thing to be able to do and to have op- uh, to have a you know restaurants, five restaurants that, are operationally still going really strong in um, and going through what we've all been through the last, I suppose, five years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, please tell me a bit about your background and your heritage, uh, the, Thai, uh, the Thai food and the Thai culture and your mom's, uh, mm. what she started. Please, I mean, uh, I, I know some of it, but please tell me uh, about your background, your childhood even. Yeah, so my mother migrated here when I was two, and um, from from Bangkok, and and she was incredible because she was not a chef, she was not um, even a cook, but she had learnt how to cook um, as a single mother, apprenticing for her uncle's Chinese restaurant in Bangkok. Um, she grew up very much, you know, upper middle class, and had lots of help around her, like, you know, kind of domestic help um, in her family. So she didn't have to essentially lift a finger, but um, she was really, like, very, um, very can-do and just had this amazing work ethic, which I think is just natural to some people. And she she naturally learnt, uh, and she was always interesting, so always interested in Thai food in particular, even though she came from... Um, a Chinese family, essentially like I am Thai Chinese um, and there's a lot of Thai Chinese in Thailand. Actually, the largest, interesting fact, the largest Chinese diaspora outside of China exists in Thailand. That's right, yeah. Um, But there's this, yeah, and this theme has really been occurring a lot for me lately since my mother's death and um, in itself, it's almost... You know, I was trying to write down because I'm I'm doing a, an event, a pop-up event um, down in Melbourne in the next month or so, um, where you kind of have to write. I did this exercise where I was writing down 
foods that are Thai Chinese and just essentially Thai. And there's, there is a, a massive crossover because the, the, the diaspora that came from China has been coming for the last, you know, 500, 600 years. Um, and they've arrived and they've mostly been merchants. Um, but they bring with them all the food that they were either selling or bringing with them because they missed it from home. And they, and they very much integrated into the Thai heritage culture so that um, I think Thai people, it was, it's like a, a frog in boiling water. All of a sudden, I think the Thais there didn't realise actually what they were eating was essentially, you know, had a Chinese origin. Yeah. <laughs> and so the food that we eat today in Thailand, so much of it is actually Thai Chinese. And, you know, we don't even really acknowledge it or give a nod to it. And now all of a sudden I am actually hearing more and more like about the Thai Chinese aspect of Thai cuisine, um, which is huge. It really was, I think, one of the biggest influences along with, you know, the Muslim influence um, of the South. And, um, you know, Thailand was a trading port. So it has, you know, it's a huge coastline. And so um, it was on the Silk Route. I think it's one of the most interesting cuisines of the world and the, the tastiest in many ways because, again, like it wasn't ever colonised, but it just, rather than being colonised, what it did do very very cleverly was diplomatically taking everybody's culture and present it back to them in a very... Um, in a very genuine um, and ingenious way, right? So, yeah, so my mum came from that background. Again, like, you know, knowing she was Chinese, well, her parents were Chinese, but she herself adamantly was Thai Chinese. So, you know, I grew up thinking, oh, we're Thai. We actually don't even have that much of a Chinese background until when I was, you know, late in, well, in my early 20s, I moved to Hong Kong um, after I finished uni. And... And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, this culture makes a whole lot of sense to me. Then it just dawned on me, I'm actually, I'm actually Chinese. <laughs> sorry, sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> so, yeah, so having that background um, from my mother and now, you know, like, kind of stewarding the, the restaurants into, into the, you know, the, the, the 2020s, um, I see how much of that is relevant because... I come from the source of the soil here. So, so much of the varieties that we grow, I select for the flavour of what genuinely I think, you know, my mum's food was 20, 30 years ago of when she left Thailand. It's so different now, you know, with the introduction of GMOs and like, and different cultures from around the world influencing Thai food. Thai food has truly changed and not, you know, not for the better or for worse. It's just changed and that's just, that is the nature of food, isn't it? That's the nature of cuisines anywhere. It kind of has its ebbs and flows and, and um, changes through the influences of other cultures that bring it, you know, bring to it. Yeah. 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 Uh, That's a very long-winded answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Uh, and then in in uh, I mean in Sydney, um, where you have your restaurants, that's there's a very strong uh, Thai town there with uh, with plenty of Thai restaurants and shops and so. Uh, please, I mean, tell me about that area. Is that something that you grew up in, or when did you get attached to that area? 
Yeah, so that area is an interesting area because it's on the outskirts of Chinatown. A, a newish addition to Sydney, I would say. So when I was growing up, that area didn't exist. Um, and historically, you know, people, Thai people migrated or came to Australia, especially Sydney and Melbourne, um, because one, it's as a Western society um, with Western universities and the culture, it is closer than Europe and it's closer than the States um, to study. So a lot of, you know, kind of wealthier people would send their children off overseas to, to finish um, tertiary education. And so um, because demographically it and, and you know, kind of like uh, geographically, it is very close to Asia. A lot of Asians from, you know, China, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore would send their children to come and finish school there. Um, so there, you know, there's always been this surge of Asians coming in and out of Australia constantly. We're very close. Like our culture is, I would say, like if you walk around Hong Kong, Hong Kong Island in the middle of the day, I remember standing in the middle and thinking, am I in Sydney or am I, like just looking at the people, mm-hmm. not the buildings, am I in Sydney or am I in, in Hong Kong? Because the population looks very similar, right? So um, Thai Town emerged because there was a confluence of Thai businesses and Thai students that arrived more or less at the same time and started living there because it was convenient. It was kind of like in Chinatown, which was halfway kind of towards UTS and halfway into the CBD. So there's UTS, um, there's, so Sydney Uni, um, New South Wales Uni, and you know quite a few other universities that were not far from that central region of the CBD. And so um, ties would want to go and live there in those massive apartment buildings that were being built that, you know, most of the Westerners didn't want to live in Mm -hmm. because, you know, Thais are used to living and being compacted in, in, in kind of units, unit, unit spaces, especially for those who come from Bangkok or, or whatever. Um, so all of a sudden there was, uh, there was a, a street that had, you know, maybe five or six Thai businesses and that was Campbell Street and that was across the road that's across the road from um, the Capitol Theatre which had been uh, defunct for a lot of years but then was given a cash injection by the state government to revive uh, Sydney, City of Sydney and they, so re- they re- renovated the Capitol Theatre and so it became you know kind of like in London in Soho, you know, an area where there were theatres and restaurants. Um, but in, in Sydney, it tends to be a lot of Thai restaurants around those theatres. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Just FYI, actually, that's one of the ones that I'm not operating. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Your restaurants, the, the, uh, the main restaurant, is that based there or, or how, where are they located? So my mother, when she actually, so so she was working um, for another Thai restaurant at, when she first arrived in Australia after doing a few odd jobs. Um, and then she decided to go off and open her own restaurant, which actually was 
not in that area at all. It was in Darlinghurst. And Darlinghurst was quite a notorious area for, you know, drug deals and um, prostitution. Um, and so I remember you know, going with her to different brothels to do deliveries because, if you know, she would start doing home deliveries when the restaurant was a bit quiet. And this was a, a two-storey restaurant um, with a courtyard, massive courtyard, beautiful bar area and an upstairs seating dining area. And um, this was 1989. So she had that chat, first chat. And she opened it with a business partner who then decided, like, you know, the ebbs and flows of a fine dining restaurant was just not good enough. So he decided to become a flight attendant. So left my mum solely with the business. Um, and she's like, well, I can't afford this rent and, you know, I can't afford. And he was front of house and she just did not have a lot of expertise in that area um, where she was just, you know, she was in the kitchen. So she decided to close that restaurant and open a tiny little kind of like takeaway tuck shop in Randwick in the middle of nowhere, which is in the outer suburbs of Sydney. Um, and that just went gangbusters. You know, she wanted to have a more of a casual format. And, you know, like I was, how old was I? Maybe 10, 9 or 10. And I was like, you know, I was way, <laughs> I was, I was front of house um, on the weekends when I wasn't at school. And um, all of, you know, during school holidays and in the kitchen, you know, helping her prep in the afternoons. So, you know, I kind of, I feel like it's in my blood to, <laughs> <laughs> to be in restaurants but she slowly expanded because she just got offers so you know when like you're in the right place right time and feeding the right people so a lot of the people that she was, fe she was feeding were some of these Asian students that I talk about who had gone through university in Australia but then decided to stay and, and work for Asian companies in their you know offices in Sydney and one of them was um, one of the clientele that she had uh, essentially gave her a little tiffin every day so that she would fill it and he would take it home to feed her, sorry, feed him and um, her uh, and his wife. And she would, like, you know, I remember doing that for years and years and years um, with her. And then all of a sudden one day he turned up and he said, look, we're opening up this, we've got this amazing opportunity to renovate um, this building, which is across the road from... Um, the Queen Victoria building, which is, is quite iconic in Australia, you know, in Sydney especially, because it's one of the oldest kind of arcade, shopping arcades um, established. And so, yeah, so that was the Ipo company and they were from Malaysia and they renovated it now and they end up buying the Queen Victoria building as well. And so she was one of the first people in the court, like the food court space, which we're still at get today and that's the Galleries Victoria. Um, and so that was, what, 25, perhaps 26 years ago mm -hmm. that was, that opened. And then slowly other places in the CBD opened. And, and her one thing was she always wanted to open a business which she could walk to. So, you know, they had to be strategically located so that she could get to all of them yeah. in, like, you know, a matter of a day or whatnot. And, you know, there were a couple of outposts outside of Sydney too. Um, and, you know, many, many people asked her to buy their, you know, to buy her franchise as, as Ch the Chat Thai franchise. And she's kind of like held, always held off because she felt that, you know, she needed to be able to control the quality, which, you know, I think is, was a good thing. 
Um, so yeah, I remember reading Danny Meyer's book about hospitality and and how he wrote that when he opens the Union Square Cafe and then the subsequent restaurants after that, um, he wrote the same thing. He said, you know, like it needs to be within kind of you know economical walking distance so that I can get to all the restaurants. I'm like. Jesus, they really do think the same, all these, mm. <laughs> all these hospital people. <laughs> part of, of, uh, of the restaurants, uh, or, or a very important part, is actually the farming, where you get much of the produce that you use. Uh, please tell me, how did that start mm. and uh, where is it now? Yeah, so we were just looking at the dates, and so that was 10 years ago. Um, and 10 years, it kind of coincides with the time I came back from Japan and um, had my kids and at that time the restaurants were starting to really expand and and we, I think we had, yeah, we had five, maybe three locations, three locations and then when I came we opened another like, um, another three or four in very short space amount of time. Um, and so we were finding ourselves you know, looking at how we could potentially cut costs, but also get better ingredients for the restaurants. Because my mum's thing was always um, making sure that we were cooking food that was authentic to us, like the Thai food that was authentic to her, um, which is, you know, very spicy, very aimed towards the Thai diaspora that lived in Sydney and not really watered down for Western palates, which sounds really mean, but she just wanted to eat. She wanted to eat the own, her own food in her own restaurants and not, having, and not have to doctor what she was cooking for the general mass and, and what the staff were eating, you know? Yeah. And I remember when I lived overseas, I, um, if I was feeling homesick and I didn't have, like it was in the middle of winter in London or whatever, I, and I couldn't find the ingredients to cook what I wanted to eat, I would go to a Thai restaurant and tell them, can you please just box me up whatever you had for staff meal? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> and they were so obliging, lovely, lovely people. Um, and so my mum's whole ethos was that she wanted to cook food that they were eating for staff meal. Um, and so that included having to find ingredients that were, you know, quite... Sometimes, you know, for the Western palate, a little bit more maybe tricky or challenging. So things like the pea plants, which are quite bitter. Um, holy basil, which is a complete different animal to Italian basil or even Thai basil. So we grow a, a number of different holy basils here, um, some of which are green and some of which are red. Um, and they're very clovey, very, like, very... Um, Anacidi almost that's more Thai basil but yeah so very spicy you know things like grachai which is another word for it, the Chinese keys um, and green peppercorns so we started trying to find suppliers who could grow these things for us and we went as far north as Darwin um, far north Queensland Townsville all up kind of like north far north Queensland way and we just couldn't find a farm that was willing to commit to doing all of these things. So there would be an agent and she would go around, you know, to other people's backyards. And most of them were 
Thai women who were married to Westerners and they were just growing a little bit of this, a little bit of that for themselves at home, but then discovered that there was a business to be made because there's so many Thai restaurants in Sydney um, to grow commercially enough to supply holy basil, just like that. But then it's a, they have a monsoon, so there's a period where you can't get it. Um, and, you know, the greater Sydney region, it gets very hot, but it's a short window that you can grow these these things. So when I remember being, you know, like bringing my kids and my family, my husband and my mum came for a holiday to Byron and there were a couple of growers here. John Bacconi, who is my now my next door neighbour, he had green peppercorns and there was another farmer not far inland um, called Kenrick Riley and they were growing a lot of Southeast Asian varieties. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, hmm, it kind of switched on, like, you know, the light bulb flicks went off and said, oh, we just thought, we looked at each other and we thought this soil is very, this red um, basalt base, very loamy soil is very similar to um, Thai soil, I suppose, in, in certain pockets of, uh, of China. It's very high humidity, the conditions are very good. Um, and it gets a real, like you know, a very substantial amount of rainfall that you don't actually need to irrigate all the time. And so on, on some of the farm visits that we were doing to some farmers around here, we, we just noticed like you know it's very ideal. Now saying that after being here for ten years, what we didn't um, count for count on was the fact that every time it rains, the grass leaps about another two meters. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a constant. Um, it's a constant effort, and so the and then like the other thing that was really important for me was organics. So being organic and um, growing naturally without any inputs, um, and you know kind of utilizing a closed loop situation where we weren't buying in too many things and not having to rely on a constant supply of fertilizer, herbicides, pesticides, um, and and there were a lot of organic farmers environment of anywhere in Australia that we had seen that we had been to um, so we just you know it really clicked for us that this might be the place um, and there's just so much wildlife everywhere it's a really uh, I felt very much at home like you know if there was a thing where you could say there's you know the sacred home like you know being my mother being Thai Chinese her parents having migrated my mum having migrated and me not really ever fitting in anywhere, being an outlier to most cultures. Uh, but really, you know, being absolutely happy anywhere. I felt like, you know, as soon as I came to this property, I just felt like this is a place where I can put down roots and this is a place where we can really um, grow things that we can nurture a family and then as a reverberation, our diners. And that it's kind of started from there and and yeah 10 years on we're kind of deep into it now and how much the, the produce i mean a, any volumes how much of the produce would you actually uh, get from there in your for your operations yeah so we were looking at the numbers there actually uh, recently and we're at the point where we're literally uh, supplying 55 to 60% of what we use in house mm which is amazing because, I mean, the farm is 117 acres, which is about 46 hectares, I believe, yeah. Um, But we only grow, I would say, on about maybe 25 to, yeah, 25 to 30 acres at any one time. Um, So that's not a huge amount. Like, we're not, 
we're not, um, what's the word, we're not conventional farming by any means because we grow such an abundance of varieties and species here. Um, we've allocated a, a large portion of our farm to rewilding for paperbark swamp because it floods here and um, we're quite close to the coast and Europeans, when they arrived in this area, really cleared a lot of the land for, cow, um, for cattle farming. It's not necessarily the best area for cattle farming, um, so we're kind of having to come onto this land and do a lot of regeneration to bring back a lot of the native wildlife and a lot of the native tree species. Um, and there is, like this area is very special and very um, important to the indigenous food crops. So there is um, there's species here that you will have heard of that came from this bread basket. So things like the macadamia nut, um, finger limes, a lot of the special tea trees, like which is the manuka equivalent, um, leptospernums. So bringing back those indigenous original species, like the the so you heard of the macadamia, but nobody has really heard of the red bottle nut. And the red bottle nut is, is, is a nut that predates the macadamia, before the macadamia was species selected to grow commercially. Um, and we noticed in our rainforest area that one tree emerged a couple of years ago. I went back there last week and now there are 20 babies around it. Wow. And okay. there was nuts all over the ground. Yeah, it's really, you know, a special place. And so, and so what we try to do is we disturb it as little as possible with our growing. Um, we, and that means we practice a no-till. Um, it's a lot of manual labour. And luckily, you know, we have some great farmers with us, one of which used to be a chef with Lennox okay. and um, had worked with Thomas Freeball. So he understands, like, so we don't just supply ourselves. We actually supply quite a few restaurants as well. Um, and so we have that multiplicity um, available to the varieties that we grow. It's like it's very, it's a very like a very special thing to be able to walk out there and you know through the summertime see ten different varieties of Japanese eggplants and then another six varieties of Thai eggplants. Now we've got hardly anywhere to, to send these eggplants, but, okay. Okay. <laughs> but we've got them. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So you know, like our menu changes as what we grow changes. Yeah. In the next part of the podcast, Belize Anderson will reveal her favorite restaurants in Australia, Japan, and in the rest of the world. If we then talk about um, restaurants, other restaurants than yours, uh, and if we begin from Sydney, um, I mean, tell me, uh, as you're based in, in, in Sydney and you have your restaurants there, please tell me uh, any other restaurant, any favorites, uh, Asian, Thai or other ones, uh, which, which favorites would you, you have there? Well, I've got a, quite a list and um, my list involves in Australia anyway, um, restaurants in, in this area, so the Northern Rivers area and Sydney. So I'll give you them both, Great. okay? Perfect. So I'm going to read them out and then we're going to go through them. Right, so I've got Sang by Mabasa, which is one of our family favourites. It is so good. It's um, a little Korean um, mum pop family run business and um, gin and 
So so we've got Kenny in the front with his wife, um, and yeah, the, his mum and dad run the kitchen, and they are amazing. Um, Fontana is a, a new favourite, and Fontana is amazing. Fontana is run by Dan and Ivy, and um, you know they're they're old restaurant hands. They've worked all around the world, um, and the reason why I love their restaurants is it just feels like a lot of love. Like every dish is so well executed. It's you know there's this theme in Australia which. People want to say, I don't know, like that word mod Australia, modern Australian is so, it's a bit weird to me. It's basically, because we're an amalgam of so many different cultures. Um, But where I find like, you know, what's really interesting is when you've got these people who are like, it's clearly not Italian or clearly not Japanese or clearly not whatever, but they're cooking really amazing influence food from those countries. And Dan is one of those chefs. He is so white. His um, Mediterranean food is excellent, and I think it's because he sources. They source really well their ingredients, and his just execution is is yeah, it's faultless. Um, now Chinese restaurant, I've got Chi Chang Feng. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but um, it's a Chinese restaurant in Beverly Hills. Now, you ask. Does Sydney have a Beverly Hills? Yes, we do. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> 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 and it's not 90210, but, um, and it's not a fancy area at all. It is uh, an out-of-the-way area, kind of west of the airport, and um, you would only go there if you live there, and it's a, a bit of a bypass area for a highway as well. But huge concentration of Greek, Italians, um, and now Chinese people, and they have opened restaurants outside of... So there's pockets of Chinese um, cult communities everywhere, one of which is Hurstville, which also has excellent Chinese restaurants. But Beverly Hills, I find, there's a whole strip of them. And um, it's at to the point where, like, I want to actually just hire Airbnb and just go for a week and go to one of these restaurants every night and just try them all. I've tried two so far on that strip on the King George's Road, and this one was introduced to me by another very excellent chef and friend of mine called Zhao Yu. And Jow, and um, yeah, so Jow highly rates this one. So he took me, and I just love it. They do an amazing pigeon. Um, you have to pre-order that, okay? And they do excellent coral trout, steamed coral, tr- coral trout, which is you know a very particular Australian fish. Yeah. Um, it's a reef fish, and it's so delicious. Um, yeah, look, there's everything they do at this restaurant. I just love. Yeah, they do fried intestines. Like, you know, that's something that I, I remember eating in my childhood and, you know, no one does it anymore. No one does a lot of offal anymore. Yep. Um, and But they do, yeah. Yeah, it feels like going home when I go to that restaurant. There's TV in the corner. Like, it's it's very much like a Chinese, Chinese restaurant. Okay, nice. <laughs> yeah, and then there's Esther, which is a good old favourite. It's always excellent. And, yeah, Matt is just... I mean, and, and Nathan, who's the head chef there, is they're always on point. Um, Cafe Passy. Now, Cafe Passy... Been there, Finnish yeah. chef. Passy yes, Petan, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, Passy's the best. Um, he's, yeah, I mean, from start to finish, from the potato bread to his, you know, strawberry granita, um, sorrel dessert, it's just so good. 
There's nothing bad about Passy at all. Like, yeah, I would eat there happily every day. However, it's becoming very, very hard to, to, to get a table, so maybe we shouldn't talk about it too much. Um, now, Piccolo Leo. Pico, sorry, no, Pico Leo is a little offshoot of Leo, which is Leo is excellent as well. So it's um, Federico Zanellato and Carl um, Furler. And Carl used to have a restaurant called Oscillate Wildly. And Federico is famous for his restaurant Lumi, um, of which I would say is also going to be on my list. Um, now, they're doing like a little pasta joint in the middle. It's very corporate in a way because it's just located where it is in the CBD. Um, but if you don't feel like a sit-down, then you go to the, their little kiosk um, side kind of coffee stand, coffee bar next door, and it's called Pico Leo. Carl does excellent pastries, amazing biscuits and, and um, cookies and, um, yeah, all the vinoiserie himself, and it's excellent coffee, just a little good afternoon pick-me-up, which I usually stop at every time I walk between my restaurants. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those restaurants that's located between my Chat Thai Westfields and Chat Thai Circular Key. So that is my the middle ground. Okay. Um, and Pioik for pastries and, and bread. Pioik is um, his shady wasaf is his name, and Rose, his wife. And they he's Egyptian, and, and Pioik is the Egyptian word for bread, I believe. Um, but his bakery in Ultimo is only open from... Thursday to Sunday, um, and you have to get there early. So it's only from like six, I think, or six or seven, and they close at 11. But in that little window, you can get all sorts of delights, and he does make the best panettone in Australia for Christmas. But because I love him so much, and he loves me so much, he makes it all year round for me, and I have it frozen here oh. in my farm freezer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so excellent. And also his sourdoughs, like, Faultless, amazing, um, and he supplies a lot of bread to a lot of restaurants around Sydney. Um, Bar Bar Vincent is every chef's dirty secret. Um, we don't want it getting out there because it's small, and um, and they Sarah and um, Andy have purposely made the entrance very very hard to find for that reason. Um, it's an excellent little wine bar with amazing food and Andy has been in the game forever and he's just an amazing amazing chef um, their pastas are incredible um, as is pretty much everything they do okay gelato I would say Shikonian Sons is my my big one here um, Shikonian Sons is run by by Mark and oh my god I'm having a brain freeze Mark and Sean, um, and they, yeah, they're like, again, this whole example of really ochre white Australians making amazing <laughs> food from other countries. These guys are just so dedicated. They only use excellent, excellent milk, which I think really helps. Yeah. But, you know, again, um, pure gelato with nothing like no other crap this is if you want inclusions this is not the place this is a you know this is a very traditional um pizzetti style gelato cafe and it is yeah great okay so the other place 
Now, I like. Can you tell I really like gelato and I really like my pastries? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. The other place that I've <laughs> discovered for really excellent gelato, and I've like, I feel like I've been paid by um, Federico to advertise his restaurants, but because there's three of them on my list, but he's so good at everything he does. So he's just opened a yogurt bar called Frio. I have not experienced that yet, but I, I'm sure it's going to be amazing because the gelato he makes at his pizza joint in Manly and his pizza place is called Avoya. Yeah. Um, the gelato is incredible. He does two flavours every night and the last time I went it was pistachio and chocolate sorbet and they were just, yeah, incredible. Um, but the pizzas are also very, very good. It's a very nice laid back, um, very cool kind of like, you know, neighbourhood restaurant but yeah, go. Uh, there is also, okay, so uh, one more, of course, Barkopan, and we know that's, that's our mutual friend Morgi, um, and Nathan Sassi. Everything about this little kind of neighbourhood wine bar is so excellent. Like, they've just so nailed it with the food, the wine, the service. Um, it's just, it just feels like you can go there when they open and still be there when they close. Like, it's it's like that friendly neighbourhood restaurant that you wish existed in your neighbourhood. However, they probably don't want you sitting there all day because there's always a huge queue. Yeah. Um, and for fine dining in Sydney, I would recommend highly Key and Lumi, which we, Lumi we talked about before. Lumi is like this Italian, Italian, Japanese, Australian thing of its own. It's amazing. Key, Key is Peter Gilmore and... He, I love everything that Pete does. Like, I think Pete's food is just so delicious. And he's, you know, he's one of the the original and the greats. Um, and still, you know, very strongly, very much in the game. And, and yeah, Key's a gorgeous location. It's, it's one of those iconic Sydney restaurants that if you really want to feel like you're in Sydney, you go and sit at Key. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you see You've got the, the Harbour Bridge there. And the Opera yeah. House and everything. Yeah, yeah, and it is gorgeous. Um... Yeah, and the service is like a really relaxed uh, style and the, every dish just comes out and you just go, this is so delicious. You know, it's just so well executed. The technique that goes into it is just flawless and so tasty as well, which is unusual sometimes uh, for fine dining because everything is just like so pure and pared back, whereas like Pete just wants to slap you with some flavour and that's just a really good thing. So two restaurants that I would mention in my area up here in Byron, uh, they're not, well, one's in Byron, the other one is a little bit further north in Mullumbim, sorry, Mwollumba, and that is Bar Heather in Byron Town. Um, Bar Heather is helmed by Oli Wong, um, a huge, you know, kind of, uh, he's, he's been in lots of very good kitchens in the past, one of which was Heather, um, Sorry, one of which was Franklin in 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 Tasmania, and by Heather, I love going there because the food changes quite. The menu changes quite a bit. There's, it's actually owned by the guys from Lo-Fi Wines, so excellent wine, excellent cocktails, um, and friendly service. The room's quite noisy, and I always feel very old there, but it's okay. I am old. Um, and Bistro Livy is the other you know, highlight of this 
area, Bistro Livy is so, so good. And, you know, both of these restaurants have won regional restaurants or had many awards. Bistro Livy's won regional restaurant in Australia, I think, twice for, for two different publications. Um, yeah, and there's nothing that Ewan and the twins, Nikki and Danny, can't do because, like, especially... I mean, can you sell... I'm, I'm such a sweet person and not many places hit my dessert button like Bistro Livy does. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, so that's Australia. Okay. Anything in, in, in Thailand or elsewhere that you would... Uh, if you would have to pick a, a few more? Yes, 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 yeah. So there's a couple places that I've highlighted. Um, so... Uh, in Thailand, it's still up there because I go every time I, I visit um, in Bangkok and it's called Samrap by Samrap Thai. Um, and it's uh, helmed by David Thompson's ex-head chef. But Prin, in his own right, is an excellent, excellent... Like, he understands Thai food, um, like, just like any... So well and so back to front and he's such a huge scholar and student of Thai cookery books as well as and I, you know he may have gotten that from Tomo um, I'm sure he was influenced a lot by Tomo but yeah he has this knowledge of Thai food that is I think um, second to none um, and I recently discovered this bush kind of like forest Thai restaurant in the middle of nowhere outside of Drung. Drung is south and um, off, really truly off the beaten path. When we went to eat there for our third meal of the day, um, at, only at like midday, there was nobody. And it was just really quite sad that there was nobody because the restaurant was so good. Like every single dish that landed on our table, would, I think, you know, had deserved a place in any fine dining restaurant. Um, and that restaurant is called Kruatong Nat Pam. Kruatong Natam, I think that's, I think I'm saying that correctly. I'll send you the spelling later on. Yep. But it's um it's very much focused on Southern Thai food. Um, and the highlight there for me was this vegetable, I would say salad, but uh, it's a yum, so it's a warm vegetable um, um, dish, which was fiddlehead ferns, um, freshly ground, uh, freshly freshly toasted ground coconut and cashew nuts and it was so simple in its delivery but it was just like so good so so good uh okay um and another one which i'm not sure other people have talked about but deserves a place uh is wan lamun in chiang mai and wan lamun she could i call her mother um she's like a real she's a real academic in terms of her uh, knowledge of Thai desserts and and she's been an amazing um, teacher to so many chefs so her daughter also is a chef but she uh, is so spot on with um, traditional Thai desserts everything that she makes and she has a little so she has a little a commissary kitchen in Bangkok as well, which she supplies to a lot of the food halls, the, like the high-end food halls. You know, like a lot of Thai people say that her price points are inaccessible, but you know what? For the amount of work that goes into her desserts, 
I would say, you know, it's worth like every, every, every baht and if not more. But her restaurant in Chiang Mai is a place where you can get all her desserts and um, an amazing array of Thai, very traditional food as well. Um, she's a great representation of old school Thai dining. Um, yeah, and it's, that's called Luan Lamun. Um, I used to live in Hong Kong, so I used to go back quite a bit with my mum after I left. And the one place that we would always go to have yum cha at, because yum cha is like, you know, <laughs> that's the connection, the Chinese connection that I always had and through my mother, because that was the one thing we could never give up, is yum cha. And uh, I think the best yum cha in the world can be had at Lung King Heen, which is in the Four Seasons in the IFC building. Um, an amazing, amazing room. So beautiful. When you're up there, you really feel like royalty. It's like you just go, this is just the most refined place I've ever been in. Um, and the way, you know, the service style is, it's just so, it's old school Chinese and it just speaks to me so hard. Yeah, okay. um, and also the price point also wants to speak to, okay. <laughs> speaks to everybody. Um, but it is worth it. It's, it's just so refined and so good. If you want, you know, like if you want to see what royal yum cha would be like, you would go there. Okay. okay. Um, in Paris, the two places that I just, loved when I was there last was uh, Mokonuts. I'm sure Mokonuts yeah. is on everybody's list. Yeah, they do everything so well, um, including, you know, their savoury dishes and their cookies and desserts. Um, and I can't wait to go back and go to Fodorol, which is their gelato place. Um, Passerini, and I'm just not sure if Passerini's had a shout out, but Passerini is so fun and just like the room is so lively the dishes like you don't expect to go to Paris and have um, like some of the best Italian food but I think what they're doing there is really excellent um, okay now we're going to jump to we're going to jump to we'll jump over and we'll go over to Copenhagen oh, okay because that was like my last big trip yeah yeah why not so um tear break I'm, I'm I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly, but T-I-R, yep. is that the word for fir trees? Tear Bakery yep. from um, Louise Bannon. Um, the last time I saw Louise, she handed me the most amazing apple cinnamon roll, which, you know, the apples had just been gotten from Berkut Monsegard, which she was cooking in, and the wheat was grown from, you know, their farm. And... Um, I think she used, I don't know what, she, I think she just reduced down apples and there was no sugar in the bun at all. And it was just everything that she served up was from that land that she was cooking on. And that was really magical. And I'm sure she's doing amazing things right now in her own bakery um, at TF. Yep. Um, yeah, I've, I mean, I've loved what Louise, Louise has done ever since she handed me a, a warm sourdough loaf when they were cooking in a, at Noma in that tiny little um, that <laughs> little bakery kitchen yeah, yeah. in the ref what is it was a shipping container I think they were in yeah, that's right yeah. <laughs> yeah so I've been a big fan of hers um, Juno and Sons another amazing bakery like for a, a city full of amazing bakeries these people are really you know they're, they're, I think and Heart Bakery they're, you know, they're the standouts obviously um, 
and yeah, Noma and Cadeau and so every every single thing that you eat in Copenhagen, Copenhagen is just on another level of its own. And as a chef, you know, when you go there, you just want to go fuck. I just want to level up so I can be, you know, on par with these people. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. So that's a little uh, my little ode to Copenhagen. Um, and we'll go to Japan for the last three. And Japan, um, I lived there for. Um, three years and it's a very special place to me because it's again like one of the places where you can never get enough of like you go and you just think okay I keep going back to the same places but there are like literally 15 billion other places that I haven't been to yeah um and I'm going to uh, I'm going to just to give you one of my my two old favorites in Tokyo um because they're not ever given any any light and I think they deserve some light because as a, as a local there when I lived there these were my local go-tos and like they're not the fanciest places they're not there but they're amazing like well executed food really well priced and you know at the same level as a lot of the places that get talked about so one is in Nakamegaro and it's called Khan and it's an old I would say you know it's it's fine dining but um very you know very friendly uh amazing service that it's all counter and um they only use hyper seasonal produce so i remember you know going when i sat there for the first time i had my first i had i had my first date with my husband there but I just remember like him talking to me but I was really like no offense Matt but he was talking to me and he was like I was like yeah I'm with really lovely company but the chef that was talking to me he said okay so your your choice for your first course is a tomato or this amazing piece of spotted mackerel and (laughs) or some fish anyway I was like what like the choices are a mackerel and a tomato like seriously and I was like, how good can this tomato be, right? So I chose the tomato, and goddamn, all he did was like slice it with his amazing knife, really finely on a plate for me, salted it with, um, I think, some like seaweed salt or something. And I remember just putting it in my mouth, and it changed. It changed me. I mean, it sounds so wanky to say something like that, but it changed the way I thought about ingredients. And you know, something, saying something like that, coming from a background where food was literally our livelihood that I think that's saying something um so Khan in Nakamegaro okay. um huge part yeah and okay so going on this flip side to an amazing izakaya um in Nogizaka um and it's not a hard one to find because it's an old defunct petrol station and the tables are like these knock-up tables and you're sitting on milk crates that have like cushions on them. Um, and it's called Washin Nogizaka. So Washin is spelled U-O-S-I-S-H-I-N. Um, and it's it's a seafood izakaya where they have um, a fresh daily display of seafood. Yep. And you can go and choose your seafood and they will cook it and serve it to you um, and all sorts of shellfish, like really rare things that you don't see every day. Um, And it's just really eclectic. Like the service is super, like the chefs are all Japanese and mostly young men and the serve waitstaff are Nepalese women and men. 
yeah. <laughs> randomly, but like because they must have you know a huge influx being where they are next to Rapongi of expats. But I would not say this is a Westerner place. Like it's not at all. Like the clientele is almost a hundred percent Japanese, um, and the Nepalese people who work there can speak both Japanese and um, and English and. I suppose Nepalese really well, so it fulfills a certain niche where you coming as a an, uh, you know a Westerner when you if you go to a lot of restaurants in Japan unless you're going with a Japanese person who can translate for you and they won't even give you the time of the day right um, so going to this place with somebody who my husband I met after I started going to this place and I couldn't speak in um, Japanese that well. Um, and you know, I could point, and you know, you can. You, everyone speaks the language of food, but you like Japanese people. It's especially hard to kind of break through that barrier if you don't have the language. Um, and so this place is like it's like an entry level um, boundary kind of undoer, which is great. But the food is authentically Japanese, and it is so good. Like it's just very generous. Um, and they they have this role which is the it's called the nogizaka roll style sushi where it's just like a nori a nori roll and it's just heaped with like uni and mm. um, toro and yeah so like you can literally get everything you want to eat there and you know like you can mostly get in it's always packed um, but if you wait around with a beer on the footpath you know they'll put you on the list and yeah, it's just a really fun place, um, and I recommend everyone I who asks me for where to go to in Japan, I always say there, because down the road there's um, the new museum, the art, I forget what the gallery is called, or the, the museum is called, but it's a brand new build, it's Tadao Ando building, it's beautiful, and that whole area is, you know, it's a fun, vibrant place to walk around, yep. um, and that place in particular is, yeah, very close to my heart. And the other, like the other, okay, again, then we're going to flip to a fine dining, but a whole experience um, is a place called Zaboran, which um, I talked to Pat Nurse about recently, and it is a ryokan out in Kuchan, just in Sapporo, um, and it's like otherworldly, like the location when it's snowing is just incredible, it is this kind of like kind of concrete bunker in the middle of nowhere yeah. surrounded by forest but it sounds really cold but then the moment you get in inside it's all wood and very spare very kind of like a monastic aesthetic um but you kind of need that you know to come down off when you're coming off the mountain and it's a great place to recover for a day or two before you enter back into the real world and the food is phenomenal. It's so, um, again, super hyper-seasonal. Oh. Um, and I, th I don't think it gets enough enough, enough uh, a light to talk about. Okay. Yeah, talked about this restaurant, yeah. Okay. Talisa, uh, one last question for you uh, before you can start uh, your, your work in the day. Um, if you could uh, skip work for a few days uh, and pack your bags uh, tonight and travel anywhere in the world to any uh, restaurant or place to eat, uh, where would you have that meal? Well, um, I am going to do that soon and um, I'm going to go to Georgia 
really? for the first time. Okay. And yes, yeah, I'm, I'm hopping on a, a tour with the guys from Roads and Kingdoms. Wow. And, um, and I, yeah, so there's, I think there's some really great, good locations that, you know, are tried and true by their previous uh, tours that they've done. And look, I love, can I, I, I love wherever I am. So I kind of feel like, yes, I can keep going back to the same places, but, but at this point in my life, I kind of feel like I really need to go somewhere new mm-hmm. and discover a new culture and just like be immersed. And I, I don't like going somewhere for a few days. Like if I'm going to go somewhere, I want to be there for at least two weeks and I want to walk around the local neighbourhoods. I want to see what the local people are eating. Um, I want to go to their local markets. Um, and I think a, a market is is always a really good jumping off point because you, the best food recommendations I ever get given, um, and chefs are really good at this, but however, you know, we, we tend to go to the same places and we don't really come off the, that beaten path so much. Um, so I ask people in the markets, often I will, and this is a practice that my mum and I used to do. We, we, like, we'd go to a, you know, some far-off country town in Australia and we'd go, okay, where's the best place to eat here? And we, you have to ask the locals. And everyone has an, a different opinion, but the locals will know. And you can, you know, do all the TikTok, all the, you know, Instagram searches that you want to from other people in the world, but really the locals know and the locals will know, you know, which restaurant's been around for 35 years or... Um, and you know like what's consistent and who sources and that's really important to me sourcing their ingredients really well um, and really caring about their craft so no matter where that is i'm sure i'm going to love it um yeah so i can't i can't wait and on the way i'm definitely going to go i think i'm going to st- have to stop in thailand okay okay yeah so okay. i'm gonna i'm gonna have to stop in thailand and eat some you know, some really authentic Thai food. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so hopefully you'll have a great trip to, to Georgia and stop by Thailand. Uh, Police Anderson from Chat Thai in yeah. Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks, Kenneth. Thank you for listening to the World of Mouth podcast with Palisa Anderson, farmer and second generation restaurateur at the Chat Thai restaurants in Sydney, Australia. If you liked our podcast, please give it a star rating on the platform you're using now and let us know which chefs you'd like us to invite to the show. You'll find all the recommendations mentioned in this episode and more in the World of Mouth app, available in your app store, or visit our website at worldofmouth.app. I'm Kenneth Nars, until next week with a new podcast guest. Mm-hmm.